Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. It's I, Bob Schmidt, your negligent, lifelong Cavalier fan host who has left you hanging since my draft day podcast. Free agency has happened. We haven't even touched on that yet. Summer League, we're barnstorming through it, 4-0, and looking for a Summer League title and a bunch of guys to get excited about there. But let's waste no time getting into it, in large part because I feel immensely guilty that uh, this should have been discussed in a timely manner, and some podcasts did right by you. This one did not because I went on my summer vacation over July 4th. Where did I go? You didn't ask. You probably don't care, but I'll tell you anyway. I went to Maine. And the last time I was in Maine during free agency week was 2014. And you know what happened? I was sitting on a rooftop bar in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. And I got a text from my former roommate. Look at this. And it was an article. I'm coming home. LeBron James, Sports Illustrated. Uh, I thought it was fake, but it was not. On that date, every year, I remember that one, it's the anniversary of LeBron James returning, but two, I remember the anniversary of the couple whose wedding I was attending in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, and I never forget it. And they think I'm a good friend, but in reality, I have anchored their very important life moment to a much more important life moment in my life, which was LeBron James returning to the Cavs. So, In short, I was there vacationing with my wife, paying attention to all of the free agency comings and goings. Now, the Cavs, you know by now who they came away with. Max Struess, George Nyang, Ty Jerome, Damian Jones, a good haul. Now, plenty of coverage has been given to their fit with the Cavaliers. I'm not going to dwell on that. I'm just going to kind of recap my thoughts about the free agency period as a whole and some of the discourse that I've seen since that point. We can all agree what they bring to the table is something that everybody who is a Cavalier fan desperately wanted to add, which was volume three-point shooting. I was resigning myself to the fact that if Max Struess was the target for the Cleveland Cavaliers, we were going to use our entire mid-level exception in order to land him because that seemed to be what his market was shaping up to be. But instead, Kobe threw a little bit of a curveball at me that I was not anticipating, which is he did pay him more than the mid-level exception. We actually paid above mid-level, but in acquiring him via a sign-and-trade and sending out Osman and Lamar Stevens, that allowed us to bring in George Yang, another excellent high-volume three-point shooter, not to mention Ty Jerome, who shot 50% from the corners last season and has been very efficient when given the opportunity from three himself. So that is one of the things I find the most exciting. There are people who will gnash their teeth and quibble about whether Struess is worth this. I just want to say this to that contingent of fans. I think you have an unrealistic view of free agency. Because if you look at the people who got roughly the same amount of money as Max Struess this year, you have Rui Hachimura, a bench player with the Lakers, $17 million a season. You have Karis LeVert, of course. You saw what he did. You have Austin Reeves making about $14 million a year. Herb Jones, Grant Williams, they're all in that stratosphere. And this is the NBA that we exist in now. There was an article I just read from an agent who was talking about how being an agent has become much easier because you don't negotiate contracts anymore for a certain class of NBA player. You have those people who are dancing on the threshold of, well, they're max players. You know, you're De- DeMontis Sabonis, you know, Desmond Bain, these guys who 
get as much as they could possibly be paid because their teams know somebody will give them that. The important thing here is retaining them. We're not going to quibble over a few million dollars. And the same can be said for that class of players who hit free agency and are sought after by teams with their mid-level exceptions. You get those guys. You get five to seven guys who are desirable players who are in that salary range, and you could have 30 teams bidding on them. So your ability to negotiate and say, well, we don't think you're a $16 million a year player. We think you're a $12 million a year player. That'll get you knocked out of the running real quick. And in fact, the Cavs had to get creative because there was enough people who were willing to give their full mid-level to Max Struess that the Cavs had to find a way to put a little gravy on it, to pay him a couple million dollars more than the mid-level exception. And it worked for both sides because Struess got more money and the Cavs got the ability to retain their mid-level exception to use for other positions of need. And that's how Nyang ends up with the Cavs. So I guess I would suggest that you should be happy that we were able to get Struess more than the mid-level because it allowed us to differentiate ourselves from some of those other NBA franchises, some of whom may have been in more desirable markets, but could only pay him the mid-level exception. I am as frugal as the next guy when it comes to counting the pockets of these NBA players. You may recall from the beginning of this podcast a few seasons ago, even though I named it in honor of Jared Allen, the Fear the Fro podcast, I thought we paid the guy too much because we had leverage. We had restricted free agency leverage, the kind of leverage you saw the Lakers retain Austin Reeves at a lesser dollar value for because other teams shied away from making offer sheets knowing that they would likely get matched. And we had that same kind of leverage with Jared Allen, but we didn't exercise it. Instead, we just decided, okay, five years, $100 million, let's do this thing. Now, I think had we dragged that out a little bit longer, maybe we would have had him on a slightly lesser contract, but I'm not relitigating that right now. My point is to get upset about money is silly, and you have to credit Kobe for figuring out a way to differentiate himself from all those teams who would have given Max Struess their full mid-level exception in a heartbeat. But secondly, anybody who has witnessed Cavalier basketball in the last few seasons and the way our salary cap has been structured should remember and realize how difficult it was for us to make trades because we had stratified this roster to high-end contracts and low-end contracts and very little sweet-spot middle deals, as I call them here for the sake of this example. We had the Max guys, Darius Garland, Donovan Mitchell, over $20 million in Jared Allen, and then we had a bunch of guys at the bottom end. Kevin Love, $30 million a year. We, we had little to nothing between $10 and $20 million per season. Now we have Karis LeVert, we have Jared Allen, and... We have Max Struess. We have three pieces. Nyang essentially replaces Jetty Osmond's contract value. Osmond was making about $7 million a year. Nyang will make eight, and he's locked in for three seasons, so we don't have to risk Osmond saying, you know what, you never play me consistently. I'm walking away for nothing next offseason. We were able to at least turn him into something, which is locked in for three to four years in these contracts of Nyang and Struess. And that has value. So we have more pieces to work with. This could absolutely fail spectacularly, sure. 
Maybe his dip last season is more reflecting of who he is. Maybe he won't succeed in Miami. I realize there's concerns, and I'm not going to try to convince you that you should love Max Struess as a player. I'm more advocating for loving what Kobe Altman did to try to strengthen the bench and what we came away with. That you should love because it could have come out far worse this summer. And Kobe didn't have the luxury of being able to say, well, you know what, I'm not going to use the mid-level exception because I don't think that Max Struess is worth that extra few million dollars. Because if he sits out this offseason, we've blown another perfectly good opportunity to try to put talent around Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland and Mobley before we reach that summer where Mitchell has to make a decision on whether he stays or whether he heads to other pastures in hopes of a better situation. So you should be an advocate for Kobe Altman utilizing every avenue possible to put depth around. Now, how that plays out, whether these guys succeed or not, in some ways, it's almost irrelevant. Because if in a year from now, Max Struess hasn't lived up to his contract, nobody's going to be talking about how we got to get out of Max Struess's deal. We're going to be shitting our pants about what that means for Donovan Mitchell's long-term future with the Cavs. I don't think Struess, I think he's the least of our concerns. Now, for those of you who take issue with the actions that Kobe Altman did take, think about the trade deadline. We had an opportunity to turn Love's contract into something, and we didn't. What have we seen this offseason? Joe Harris, net sharpshooter, they just paid the Pistons to absorb his contract. Could we have put together some sort of deal that brought in Curry and Joe Harris last year, and then we would have had the ability to essentially keep Joe Harris here? Yeah, but instead what we got was inaction, received nothing for Kevin Love. Not even a, a bad asset, but somebody who could absorb minutes. I would argue that we cannot afford to sit back. One of Kobe's best assets is that he has found creative ways to make moves when we didn't think any were there. Acquiring Jared Allen, that came out of nowhere. Acquiring Lowry Markinen, nobody thought that that was going to happen. He was a restricted free agent. And all of a sudden, he turned Larry Nance into Lowry Markinen. And then in this acquisition of Max Struess, I don't think he gets enough credit for that. You would be hard-pressed to find GMs out there who have been more creative than Kobe when it comes to unorthodox ways to add talent to the roster. We need to use all these vehicles to make the bench as competitive as possible because there is a very large looming decision for Donovan Mitchell. So what the fuck are you worrying about how much money Max Struess is being paid. The money shit will work itself out because guess what? If Donovan Mitchell leaves, we have a ton of money to allot to a bunch of meaningless role players. If you're one of those people who's terrified that Donovan Mitchell is going to leave, you should be excited that we came away with two definite rotation pieces, possibly three, depending on what Ty Jerome is able to do over the course of his two seasons that he's locked in here. Would you rather he had sat it out and did nothing and just blown an exception that needs to be used or you lose it for this season? The answer is clearly no. So in the moment, I would suggest you just step back and say, holy shit, we came away from this summer with what I would call three 
well, two very serviceable rotation players in Yang and Struess, one who I think has massive upside at a minimal contract value, Ty Jerome. This is a guy who has performed when he's got the opportunity, but he's been in some situations where, unfortunately, he's not going to be prioritized. Golden State has guards aplenty. Oklahoma City had Shea Gilgis breaking out. They had Lou Dort back there. They had Giddy. In this situation, if Rubio doesn't bounce back in the way that we're hoping he will, a little further removed from that injury, I think there's a lot of upside to be had for Ty Jerome vastly outperforming a $2.5 million a year contract. Keep in mind, Dean Wade's extension kicks in at nearly triple that amount this year, $6 million a year. So to have a third guard, possibly a backup point guard down the line in a Ty Jerome who can swing between both spots and has a little more size, that is a luxury. And we saw what he did against us last year in that awful game where the Golden State Warriors and their second unit and their G League guys blew the doors open against the Cavaliers here in January. So that is kind of what I wanted to talk about because I would like to credit all the people that didn't take a giant shit all over their own fans and they put up their podcasts in a timely manner. I didn't do that, but I listened to all those podcasts and they covered the excitement of the fit, the the motion shooting, the corner shooting, the the guys who can create their own looks and space the floor effectively, that has been discussed very well. I don't think we need to dwell on that. But one thing I think has been under-discussed is how beneficial these deals will be for our future trade possibilities and our future maneuverability. Struess and Levert now occupy the middle ground. It's another contract in that range we'll need if, God forbid, this iteration of the Cavs isn't enough and we got to tweak further in the future, we're going to be grateful to have contracts in that middle range. Because we saw what happened before free agency kicked off. Every single hypothetical trade out there was about Jared Allen because he was the only player who we didn't consider untouchable who made a substantial amount of money. Now, if we need to construct deals and if we find that adding multiple wing shooters in Struess and Yang and having Levert back, maybe one of those guys is movable because we have more in the cupboard. Whereas before, we had a cupboard full of one-dimensional players, Okoro, Stevens, etc. Meanwhile, you've got Struess out here putting up seven a game. you got Yang out here putting up five a game. That's a lot of volume shooting and a lot of efficiency. So I didn't hear much pushback on George Yang's contract and I don't think there's much to be said. I mean, $8.5 million a year for a relatively short commitment, three years. Yes, he's 30 years old, long in the tooth towards the end of this, but I'm excited to have a guy who can not only space, but you can allow him to defend three different positions in the front court. I mean, you don't want him on centers for too long. You don't want him on the super elite small forwards that much. But when pressed to guard three to five, it's something that he can at least do decently to some of the things that have yet to transpire. Christian Wood, still out there. Uh, Kelly Oubre, still out there. Do I think the Cavs are going to be in for either of those guys? No. But I will say I would love Christian Wood on this roster. I hear a lot of things about, oh, he's a locker room cancer. He can't play defense. Who gives a shit if he can't play defense? Because we got to hold on to Jared Allen and Evan Mobley. And I'm happy about that. Secondly, and I'll touch on this with the Dame Lillard stuff, but what the fuck did people expect from Christian Wood 
with a terrible Pistons team, a god-awful Rockets team, and then in a situation in Dallas where he was the second-best scorer and they relegated him to the bench. I haven't heard specific examples of why he's a locker room cancer, but I also don't know how happy we should expect someone to be who's always the vet on dogshit rebuilding teams and one who seemingly doesn't ever have the respect of his coaching staff. Now, the truth is, of course, probably somewhere in the middle, but I guess what I'm saying is Christian Wood dialogue has regressed to the point where we're talking about a minimum level deal or even the biannual exception. I would pull the trigger on that in a heartbeat because if anybody could hide his warts, it's an Evan Mobley or a Jared Allen. And if you sign a guy to a low-level monetary contract and he doesn't work out, just get rid of him. It's low risk, high reward. And for as much as we've added spacing, we haven't done much to help in the rebounding capacity. So if you could get a guy who's a high 30% three-point shooter in Christian Wood and rebounding, my goodness, would I be ecstatic. Allen is going to benefit massively from the spacing, but the rebounding is still going to be largely on he and Mobley. Craig Porter Jr. might be the best rebounding guard that could have been acquired through the draft. And we got him. So I'm very excited about that. I don't think we'll play much. This is a good place to transition to Summer League because I do want to get my thoughts out there about that. I almost sat on this podcast till the Summer League was completely done in case the Cavaliers barnstormed to a championship. But I got another in the clip later on this week with a guest. So let's just talk about what we've seen so far. I had my hesitance about Amani Bates. Um, primarily because we were so shallow on the bench that I thought maybe we should get somebody who's a little more seasoned and ready to play right now. But considering what we did in free agency, I got to say, I'm pretty excited about this gamble on Amani Bates. Now, it's super low risk because, well, it's the 49th pick, and the chances that those guys end up sticking on any NBA roster, generally speaking, hasn't been very high. But to see what he did in games one, two, and three, where he got better every single game, and game three was spectacular. I am very excited about his potential in the NBA, so long as he can accept and adapt to be able to play in a game environment. And I think this whole team in Summer League has played very team-oriented basketball, smart passes, good sets across the board. Sam Merrill, a house on fire in that game where he knocked down eight threes, and he looks like a guy who just needs an opportunity. And the confidence that he's displaying in Summer League, I hope that if and when he finds himself on the floor with the main roster, he lets it rip. Too often, these guys who don't have consistent roles come in and they play tentatively. But seeing what he can do with not much talent around him, it makes you wonder, what could Sam Merrill provide if all the attention was directed elsewhere towards your Darius Garlands and your Donovan Mitchells and your more prolific players? Because he's unbelievable in the one capacity that he's great at, which is shooting. I want Merrill to just play like he has nothing to lose. His stroke, his form, it's beautiful. And I don't know that any of these two-way guys are going to get significant minutes with the big roster. But what's exciting to me about guys like Craig Porter Jr. and Isaiah Mobley is that they may have limitations on their overall ceiling. You know, we've got the two categories of guys, essentially. Imani Bates is the guy who has a very low floor right now, but a very high ceiling. And you're hoping that he can bring up some of the areas that are of concern, body control, 
balance, getting a little more weight and muscle on him, defense. Now, sometimes you can get away with it. I mean, he's got a couple blocks that very well could have been called blocking calls against him, but you just hope that over the course of time he'll develop. But then Mobley and Craig Porter Jr., I put in a different category. Those are the high floor, maybe slightly lower ceiling guys. If they can contribute the stuff that they've proved to do game in and game out, rebounding, boxing guys out, passing, uh, playing unselfish basketball, and just making smart decisions, that we had guys on the roster last year. Owl Neto is the one that comes to mind for me. Not a guy who had a regular spot in the rotation, but I always found myself happy with his minutes. And I'm hoping that Ty Jerome replaces that this year, essentially. And that if Rubio proves to be as inconsistent as he was last year in coming back, that we can just see a natural progression of Ty Jerome assuming that role and Craig Porter Jr. learning underneath those guys and coming up so that when Rubio eventually does step away and this contract ends, we will still have guys in the system who know the offense and who can do all the things that we need done reliably, which is defend, Some rebounding from that position is always nice because we saw what getting rebounding from non-conventional positions did for the Knicks. Goddamn Josh Hart. So, yeah, I'm excited about what played out. Damian Jones, I don't really have a lot of feelings there. But I feel like the bar is so low because Robin Lopez, it was a rough watch seeing him log any substantial minutes. So if Damian Jones gives us anything, fantastic. And if I recall, Damian Jones, also a Vanderbilt guy, so... That's got to be cool for Darius Garland, even though they didn't overlap while they were there. So Craig Porter Jr., he's clearly becoming the most exciting prospect because he just does things you don't expect to see from a guard. He finished through contact in that comeback against the Bulls in Summer League. The team ended on a 7-0 run, and it was a big part of that was him driving to the rim, absorbing contact, and, and finishing regardless. Yeah, he may not have the outside shot that other people do at this point. But to get one of these guys who can rebound, who's a good passer, who seems to have a pretty solid handle. I mean, obviously against NBA-level competition and the longer guys who may be guarding him in the league, it may not look the same. But for a guy to go undrafted, I didn't know anything about him. I'm not going to lie. I I just watched the highlights like anybody else. But seeing these four summer league games, I get it. I understand. And I think whether he – ends up eventually getting NBA minutes or not, I feel very good about the swings that Altman has taken late in these drafts. Isaiah Mobley, last year. Craig Porter Jr. is an unsigned free agent. Dean Wade, hopefully, as an unsigned free agent. I hope he can return to more of the form we saw a couple years ago. And then, of course, Amani Bates. In not having a first-round draft pick and having those late first-round picks, sure, I I like what Jalen Wilson has done. I like what I've seen from Hunter Tyson. I believe that Kobe Brown will be good. Keontae Johnson, I think he's a very intriguing prospect, but I'm not mad at all about what we've seen from Bates so far. So those are kind of my feelings on what the Cavaliers did. I want to touch on a couple other things. Damian Lillard. I, it's no secret, anyone who's listened to this podcast for a while knows there's a point when I think player empowerment goes a bit too far. And I am disappointed in how things are playing out with this Damian Lillard situation. I do not like the package that Miami is putting out there. I do not like the maneuverings of Aaron Goodwin and Dame's 
agency team trying to direct him to just one team because it's a sore spot for me. When people leverage their way out like Kyrie Irving did, like Paul George did with the Pacers, like like Bradley Beal having the no trade clause effectively allowed him to dictate where he was going. That I put on the Wizards. That's their own goddamn fault. But it's terrible. We see the same shit happen that happened with the Cavs. People taking pot shots and saying, well, the Blazers didn't do anything to put a team around them. They did a ton of shit. You are absolutely fooling yourself if you think that the Pacers haven't tried and tried to do it. They didn't have high draft choices because Dame has played them firmly into the middle most seasons. They've spent money. They spent money on Jeremy Grant, traded Gary Trent Jr. to bring in Norm Powell, who's a superior player. They spent a first-round pick to bring in Larry Nance Jr., who was a backup for a bad Cavs team. You can question the people that they brought in, but you cannot question the effort. So for people with the luxury of playing in these tax-free, income tax-free states and these desirable markets, your Miami, your L.A., there's nothing I like less than seeing their fan bases say, well, you didn't do anything. To, of course he doesn't want to be there. Your market sucks. Don't mistake the fact that they didn't get coverage as not doing anything because they did plenty. You might not have noticed because you live in your fucking suck-your-own-dick bubble, but the Portland Trailblazers have very actively tried to put a title roster around Damian Lillard, and they have failed. I acknowledge that, but the effort is there. There are limitations in some of those markets to what you can do if you don't have draft capital and if people require a premium money-wise to come play in your market. You can only work with what you have. Now, I have no problem with Damian Lillard saying that he doesn't want to be there anymore. I do have a problem with him taking a gigantic extension and then essentially saying, I will only go to this market. Well, then you should be prepared to stay with the team and you should be fine with that. Because if you want them to work with you to be put into a competitive environment, that's one thing. Even me, cantankerous Bob, I have changed over time to say, okay, this is what the NBA is now. Guys will sign contracts. They will mean very little in terms of whether or not they will say they want to stay there. But if you want true 100% control over where you go to the tune of picking one team. The vehicle to do that is free agency. You should have never taken the extension. And in that regard, I don't have a lot of sympathy for Damian Lillard. I wouldn't go so far as to call Dame Lillard a malcontent, but I would say I think he's being unreasonable to expect Portland to make a trade with a team who has next to nothing to offer them. Without a third party involved, why would you want Hero when you already have multiple wings? Scoot Henderson, Simons, Shaden Sharp. If they're going to get a prospect back for Dame, if it's not just going to be straight picks, then it should be front court centric because that's where they need the help more than anything. I don't blame them for wanting nothing to do with that Miami deal. And as much as I, I actually kind of like Miami, but I hate the entitlement that some of the fan base will exude when it comes to, well, you're eventually going to concede. Why? Why do they have to? If Portland has resigned themselves to, well, we're going to trade Dame and we're going to start this rebuild, who even gives a shit if he reports? Sit on him. If he wants to stay home, if he's unhappy, let him. I mean, it furthers your own agenda of being bad so that you can rebuild quicker. So I hope Joe Cronin slow plays this. I hope eventually Dame gets to the point 
where he opens up his parameters a bit and says, okay, any, any competitive situation, I'll work with you on it. But for it to be in the place that it is now, it's disappointing because I like Dame Lillard as a player. I mean, I last year, I felt like he should be discussed amongst the first, second team All-NBA guys, regardless of how his team was doing, because I have that much respect for his game. But I don't feel bad for him because he hasn't won. Because when I look at Portland, I still see the effort there. They've constantly spent money re-signing their own guys. They've traded picks in order to bring in people. This might be the one instance where they held on to the high-value draft pick, but just think about when they were trading first-round picks to bring in Robert Covington, when they took on money in Larry Nance Jr. and sent out picks because they were just trying to strengthen the overall roster. They've re-signed the guys who have been good for them over the years. And yeah, now a guy like Yusuf Nurkic looks like a bad deal. But they didn't let him walk away for nothing because they knew how important it was to try to keep competitive teams out there. Now, all the moves haven't necessarily worked out, but you cannot say that they didn't try to put a winner around Dame. And he shares in the responsibility of needing more help than your truly generational-level superstars, your Jokic and your Giannis and et cetera. So I love Dame, but I don't like the strays the Blazers are getting I don't like the package Miami put together, and I hope that Cronin slow plays this because I loved his comments about, well, this may take a while, but while still acknowledging that he, you know, they haven't succeeded to the level that he'd hoped to do, and in that way he did feel like he'd failed Dame. You hope that you can find that perfect situation where that lines up and he goes to a place that he wants to and you get the best return possible. But, you know, there's a lot of work involved, and often it involves more than just one destination. Dame's obviously a very important person and player to us that, you know, what the rest of his career looks like matters to us and we care about that. At the same time, we have to do what's best for us. I didn't think he was a dick about it. And I'm rooting for Portland to come out well in this situation. I just hope Dame thinks long and hard about that because Dame is the one who has to do all the heavy lifting in terms of tarnishing his own reputation in order to make this trade be executed in the way that he's suggesting. Yeah, he'll get to play on the heat, but to what cost? Because if you don't win a title, when you're retired and you're years removed from this, will it have been worth it if you turn a significant portion of your Portland fans against you? I mean, there is a parallel to the way LeBron left the Cavs the first time. Now, of course, he came back. He redeemed himself in the eyes of most, if not all, Cavs fans by winning that title. But I think if you look at the way he came back, he came back to play for a guy who lit him up in that Comic Sans letter on the way out the door. If he was that determined to salvage his reputation, clearly the way the fans turned on him after he left Cleveland bothered him. I don't want that to happen to Dame. And I don't think it would to that degree, but I do think he's putting his reputation at unnecessary risk. Almost everybody understands why he might want to leave, but it's a vastly smaller amount that will understand if he forces his way to one team at the expense of the Portland Trailblazers being able to recoup anything of substantial value. Beyond that, I mean, there's other things we'll touch on. I've got another one in the clip for later in the week. But I wanted to touch on free agency and a little bit about Summer League. And I'm, I'll am i probably have more to say on Summer League when we know what happens with the playoffs. But I couldn't wait any longer. 
uh, us taking some strays on Twitter at Fear the Fro Pod. So thank you to everybody who subscribes to the podcast. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate the ratings and the reviews. Uh, it's very cool every time I see that people have added some reviews to the queue because my hope is that by the time we roll into next season, uh, everybody will know that we're out there doing what we do. And when I say we, I mean me. I'm talking in the plural like a real piece of shit when in fact I'm just just one man, just one humble, neglectful man. So thank you very much. Another Fear the Fro podcast on the way.